You're listening to HIV News and Views, a podcast series from thebody.com. For a transcript of this podcast and for more interviews and first-person stories, visit us on the web. Welcome to HIV News and Views. My name is Bonnie Goldman, and I'm editorial director of thebody.com. Today, I'll be talking to an old friend, HIV clinician and researcher, Dr. Joel Gallant. He was the body's first online expert, and he's just had a fabulous new book published. It's called 100 Questions and Answers About HIV AIDS, and it's geared for someone with HIV who wants to learn more. Welcome, Dr. Gallant. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure, Bonnie. Good to be back. Today, I was going to ask you some questions, not only about your new book, but a little bit about how you got started answering questions about HIV back in the dark days of the pandemic in the U.S., when there were few treatments and people were desperate for information. Well, I can't remember when it all started. I just remember in the, it was not only the dark days for HIV, but it was the dark days for the uh, Internet. And I remember being on uh, AOL. I think I was one of their charter subscribers, and there was this chat room about HIV and just all sorts of horrible misinformation going around within this, I don't know if it was a chat room or just a bulletin board or something. And I started answering questions. Uh, you know, I said I was an HIV doctor. I don't think I said who I was. And people started sort of depending on me to respond. And then I ended up getting, you know, started getting hundreds of emails in my uh, inbox every day from people who had a lot of questions about HIV. And I, I really had to, to stop doing it. It just became overwhelming. Do you remember what kind of questions that were being asked at the time? Most of these people were people who had HIV and were asking questions about their treatment, about symptoms, about testing, and, and just kind of uh, questions that they either weren't getting answered by their physicians or maybe they didn't have HIV expert physicians taking care of them. Some of the questions were about, you know, fear of HIV and the worried well who were worried that uh, that they had it, but mostly it was from people who had HIV. So I, I kind of put that aside and then... Um, uh, I don't know when it was, but I was in Nantucket on vacation, and I met Jamie Marks, who had this idea to start this website for people with HIV called The Body, and, and he asked me if I'd be willing to work with it, and, and his idea was that I would, you know, write things and write articles and stuff like that, and I said, you know, I have this idea, because on AOL, there was such a need for answering questions. I said, what about doing an interactive ask the doctor sort of thing, and, and we did that, I think, as far as I, it was certainly the first one for HIV. I don't know if it's the first one for, for other diseases, but initially I was the only one on it, and then later they started adding uh, additional faculty, and then I had to move my forum off to the Hopkins website when they opened that up, but that was how it all got started. And so do you remember what was your experience when you first started answering online? I mean, was it different than the questions you were getting in AOL? Pretty similar, um, except that I would say that there was now more stuff coming from people who were not necessarily positive, but just afraid of being positive or afraid that they were infected. So we were getting a little more of the kind of wacky questions because the AOL bulletin board had sort of been really focused on people who were already positive. So we got a, a broader d diversity of questions from a, a more diverse audience. Yeah, it was something like, so it was like a very exciting moment in the world of HIV. I mean... Yeah, 90, 1996 was really a, a, a real high point. And it also, at the same time, it, it, it suddenly HIV became even more complex and the decisions that you had to make, uh, the, the impact of the decisions and the, you know, the importance of making correct decisions became even more important now that there were drugs that we could really treat of HIV effectively with. So it, it was an interesting time to be answering questions because we were all learning at the same time. 
And certainly there, you know, people with HIV were being cared for by a, a diversity of doctors, some of whom were quite expert and others who were not. Uh, of course, that's true now, too. So it was, a, it was a very exciting time to be doing that kind of a forum. And wasn't it also very exciting because the prognosis for someone with HIV had quickly reversed? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it was, it was amazing just to see uh, people go from what they thought was a, a terminal illness to uh, suddenly going back to work and feeling good and returning to life. And sometimes the questions were not so much about treatment as how do you adjust to this sudden change in your prognosis? I mean, of course, we all think of it as a good thing, and it was, but but it's pretty challenging, too. So if you haven't worked in years and you've uh, kind of planned your finances, uh, assuming that you weren't going to live very long, and now all of a sudden you've got a whole life ahead of you, you know, it presented some challenges, uh, even though it was a wonderful, a wonderful turn of events. Uh-huh. So you were seeing this both in, in your daily practice at Johns Hopkins as well as online? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, it was interesting to watch these adjustments go take place. And, and I think a lot of us uh, clinicians, we were so excited about the medical results that when when our patients started coming to us, kind of, you know, sometimes being depressed or guilt-ridden or or relationships breaking up, you know, we, we at first we didn't really understand the impact of such a a huge change in prognosis. But, you know, I, I eventually learned that good stress is still stress. Even though this was all good news, it was presenting uh, big challenges for a lot of people. And, and there were all sorts of emotions that were sort of unexpected, both from my standpoint and also from my patient standpoint, uh, that came about as a result of this good news. So what, what was the most surprising thing you discovered when you began answering questions online? Was there anything that surprised you that you hadn't seen in practice? Well, I don't deal with very many HIV-negative people in my practice. So everybody I know has got HIV, and and by the time I see them, they usually already know they have HIV. So I'm not dealing with all these people who think they have HIV or are afraid they have HIV. And I learned a lot about the depths of, what shall we say, paranoia, hypochondriasis, sexual guilt, I also learned all sorts of things about some interesting sexual practices that I'd never even considered before uh, because everybody wanted to tell me what they were doing sexually in order to get them worried about HIV. So the descriptions of their activities were sometimes rather uh, graphic and often things that I wouldn't have thought of before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. An interesting but, kind of <clears throat> record we have now, both on our side on Johns Hopkins of all these strange or interesting practices that are going on across America and in the world. Yeah, I guess it's a good thing for those people. I mean, when you think about it, there's probably a website for every one of those behaviors. And and in the old days before the web, they probably thought they were just, you know, a solitary pervert. Now they know they have company. But <laughs> what was interesting to me, to me, too, was that it seemed like uh, most of my questions that I was getting about fear of HIV were coming from straight men whose risk was actually quite low. And the people who had the highest risk for HIV generally weren't obsessing about it. They, you know, I wasn't getting a lot of questions from HIV-negative gay men who were worried about having HIV. It was mostly from people who were extremely unlikely to be getting infected. And what do you think that's due to? I mean, why is that population so terrified of HIV? Is it is it only sexual guilt? I think there's a combination. There's Some of these people are just 
are doing things that they feel guilty about. Maybe they are, you know, having sex with men that they don't want to talk to their female partners about. So in some cases, it's guilt. I think in other cases, there's clearly a lot of people who are obsessive compulsive out there who spend a lot of time on the internet and they obsess about the worries that they have and fears and and they'll write to, they'll post things on any internet uh, site until they can get somebody who will sort of contribute to their fear even more, which then starts a, a spiral. <laughs> you know, my my way of dealing with these people was generally to make fun of them, and and that I think served two purposes. One was that maybe by ridiculing their concerns, I sort of, in a in one way, uh, re- hopefully reassured them that they weren't at great risk. And at the same time, it provided entertainment for the more legitimate users of the sites, since, you know, we could have a little fun with them. Not to minimize their concerns, but, you know, frankly, when somebody's had 20 HIV tests in the last six months and still believes they're positive, you have to draw the line. So that's just due to psychological problems they might have. Do you think that part of the problem is that people, both in the U.S. and globally, are deeply ignorant about HIV? Well, there's a lot of that, too. And I try to address those questions a little more in a straightforward fashion if it's just pure ignorance. But, you know, many of these people had been had seen multiple doctors, all of whom had told them that their concerns were unfounded. They've read everything they could read. So it's not a matter of ignorance. It's really a matter of psychopathology. But there is a lot of ignorance, too, especially I see it coming from young people. Uh, I see it coming from questioners in developing countries where there may not be much uh, discussion of this. And, you know, not that the information isn't out there for people to find, but if, if they choose to try to get answers to their questions by asking me, I do the best I can to try to educate a little bit. Again, remembering that my sites, uh, both when I was at The Body and, and now at Hopkins, are really meant for people with HIV. And I have to be careful not to answer too many questions from worried HIV-negative people because it it ends up cluttering up the site and making it less useful for people for whom the site is really meant, and that's, that's people with HIV. So I'm sure there's a need out there for that kind of thing, but th- that's not really what the site is meant to do. So how many years have you been answering questions online, do you think? I would say since 96. I mean, that thing that I did on AOL, you know, that only lasted for a few months, and it was unofficial. So I guess I've been doing it continuously since 1996. The site at Hopkins is, is quite similar to what I did on the body. How do you still have the energy to answer questions? Some of my readers tell me I'm not as good as I used to be, or let, let me put it this way, I'm not as funny as I used to be, because I used to really spend a lot of time trying to come up with creative and, and entertaining answers to the crazy people. And, and the archives, uh, uh, you know, under we, we have a, a, at the Hopkins site, and you probably do too, of favorite questions. The archives are full of hundreds of entertaining questions. They're not always entertaining because of what I write. Sometimes they're just entertaining because of what the questioner writes. And and I have to say, I've cut down on that because as fun as it was, it got repetitive and it also encouraged lots of more crazy people to write into to me. Um, so I do a little less of that. And as a result, I know that my site now is it's informational, but it's a little drier and probably not as amusing. So I just tell people who complain, just go back and read the favorites again, and, and you'll find stuff that'll uh, make you laugh. But it is a time-consuming job if I try to respond to all those type of questions. So how many questions do you answer every day, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's probably come down a little bit. I, I would say maybe I answer, you know, five or six a day uh, on average, maybe a little less. And the reason I think it's it's less now is in part because people are doing so well. And a lot of the questions I used to get were from people who were either having horrible side effects from drugs or their viral load wasn't suppressed and they were trying to get information 
and probably, you know, people are having fewer side effects and they're less likely to be failing their therapy and they've got better things to do than to send me questions. So I, I think that's a good thing, that the need for the site is, is a little less than it used to be. Let's turn to your book. Uh, the book is called 100 Questions and Answers About HIV and AIDS. What made you want to put this thing together, and who's it geared for? Yeah, well, my original idea had been to go through the archives from the forum, from the uh, website and, and pick a mixture of educational, informative questions and answers as well as entertaining ones and just kind of have a book that was full of uh, both types. You could look up what you needed to look up to get information, but then you could always have a laugh at reading some of the the entertaining stuff. And I proposed that to some publishers, but... You know, they either wanted me to write a textbook or they wanted me to, the, the, in fact, the one publisher said, well, we really like your book, but we don't want you to talk about sex. And I said, well, you can't really talk about HIV and not talk about sex. And they said, well, could you take out the word blowjob? You know, and I said, well, we could argue about that. But anyway, the, the bottom line was that none of those worked out. And then I, I got approached by a publisher that has this series of books called 100 Questions and Answers about X, about whatever disease. And I was stunned to learn that after all these years of publishing these books, they didn't have one about HIV and AIDS. So I, uh, since this was kind of similar to what I had had in mind, I agreed to, to write the book. The hard part was finding exactly 100 questions, not more and not less. But even though I couldn't include the really wacky stuff in there, I did try to keep the tone light and entertaining so that people weren't going to feel too uh, bogged down with a, a heavy... Uh, overly serious book about this. And I see that the book is geared for people with HIV who have questions. Yeah, it's really meant for people with HIV. When I was writing it, I had in mind the person who just found out they're positive and, and really doesn't know anything. And I wanted to write a book for that person. So the first few chapters are really, what do you need to know right now? And then it goes into more detail about things that, after you've sort of learned the basics, the things that you'd need to know. It has real basic information. What does HIV do? Um, What's a CD4 count? What's a viral load? What's the difference between HIV and AIDS? Why isn't there a cure? That kind of thing. We also go into issues about medical care. How do you deal with your doctor? How do you find a doctor? What kind of tests should you be getting? What kind of vaccinations? And talks about when do you start treatment? What kind of treatment? Uh, why do you need to be adherent? Why can't you stop treatment? We go into um, side effects, toxicity, the opportunistic infections. And we all ha also I have sections for about women, about um, pregnancy, um, co-infection with hepatitis C, depression, things like that, and just sort of basic sections about how do you live with HIV? Can you travel? Can you have pets? What can you eat? What can you, how do you have sex? How do you deal with HIV-negative partners? So I, I think of it as pretty comprehensive. Um, and when I was done with it, it was hard for me to come up with any questions that I was missing, although I'm sure somebody could think of some. So I thought it was interesting that you included questions like, how do we know that HIV wasn't created in a lab? Yeah. Well, I got to the end, and I, I had a chapter called Questions for People Who Still Have Questions. And I dealt with a lot of these conspiracy theories. You know, why, how do we know that HIV doesn't cause AIDS? How do we know it wasn't created in a lab? How do we know the drug companies haven't just developed a cure that they're keeping secret? People who believe those theories are probably not the types of people who are going to read my book, but I wanted to try to dispel some of those myths because we've got more important things to do than to get bogged down in, in things that are clearly not true. But I didn't want to ignore those uh, sentiments or those concerns because I know there are a lot of people who, who still believe in those theories. But I think it, it's interesting that you've included them. Do you find that both on the web and in your practice that there are still feelings out there or theories that the drug companies are withholding a cure? I don't see that so much in my own patients because, after all, 
by coming to see me, they've kind of, you could say they've, uh, they've accepted the establishment view about HIV and they're, they're, you know, voting with their feet. But when I talk to patient groups or, uh, lay audiences, I still, uh, hear that. I still hear some of those concerns. I certainly, uh, get it on my website. There's still a, a dwindling number of HIV denialists out there who, who think that HIV doesn't cause AIDS. And, and it's sad because what I see is that the belief in these theories can really be damaging, and it causes a lot of people to avoid the healthcare system, to avoid medical care. I've seen people die as a result of belief in these theories. And so I think it's not just a curiosity to talk about them. I think in a book like this, we really have to deal with anything that could get in the way of people's uh, willingness to accept medical care, which is life-saving. So how do we know that the drug companies aren't withholding the cure to make money? A lot of people think, well, my God, the epidemic's been going on now since 1981. Well, shouldn't we have a cure by now? And I point out that, you know, we really don't have a cure for any viral disease at all, with the possible exception of hepatitis C, and we don't cure that very often. But all other viral diseases either get better by themselves or or stay latent like HIV does and remain chronic or they kill you. So there's no surprise there. I pointed out that people who develop therapies at drug companies, they're not the executives, they're scientists. And while they may be motivated by profit motives, they also still are motivated by the things that motivate scientists, including Nobel Prizes, the respect of colleagues, getting published in journals, being interviewed on Oprah, getting more funding. And I can't imagine that a scientist would obey an order by a drug company uh, CEO to keep a cure quiet, since that would be such an amazing accomplishment. Drug companies are really competitive. You know, they want to be the first. And if, if you're going to develop a cure, you're going to want to be the first one out with it. Remember that if, you're, if you've got a cure, you probably some scientist at another drug company is pretty close behind you. So you're not going to just sit on it waiting for that other company to put, put the cure out first. Uh, you're going to want to be the first one out. And, and, and in the end, that's going to increase your profits because a, a cure is probably going to be expensive. And so whoever comes out with it first would, would make the, the most money. I would also point out that, you know, one of the arguments that people make for this idea that drug companies actually have a cure is that uh, if you cured HIV, it would be cheaper, and uh, instead of getting lifelong profits, they would people would get better and they wouldn't have to take drugs anymore. And that might be true, but you got to remember that uh, for an individual drug, you know, the, the drug companies make profits for a few years. Then the drug either becomes unpopular or gets replaced by something else or goes off patent and becomes generic. So drug companies are not looking forward to endless profits from from these drugs. They know that they'll they'll get some profit and then their their time will have come. So if they could actually come out with a, a cure, it could actually be more profitable for them than than just treating the virus chronically. What do you find on your online forum is most asked in 2008? Is it women who want to have a child with a negative partner? Is it treatment experience people looking for a good regimen? I think uh, right now, the most important questions and often the most asked questions have to do with how we can best use these new drugs that have come out in the last year. We talked about 1996 being a really exciting time in uh, HIV history, but actually 2007 and early 2008 are also very exciting years because we've had three new drugs in the last year, all of which are important drugs for people with uh, drug resistance. And we now are at a time for the first time in the history of the epidemic where virtually everybody can be effectively treated with an undetectable viral load. 
And I think a lot of the questions I get from both doctors and patients are, how do I best use these new drugs to make sure that they work and that they last? And so I get a lot of that from the HIV-positive users of the forum. I still do. Of course, I still get my usual questions from the, the worried well, but those don't change very much over the years. Do you think that the currently newly diagnosed people need to learn as much as patients did 10 years ago? Meaning people go to their doctor, they get the treatment, they go back to work, and that's it. I think actually they need to know more, even more now. And the reason for that is because treatment is so effective, it's so important that it be done right. And, you know, in the old days, we would argue about should you give AZT when your T cells are below 200 or below 350 or below 500. You know, but in the end, AZT had a very modest benefit, and it didn't last that long. So if you got that wrong, it wasn't going to make a huge difference. But today, because the drugs are so effective, anything you do right is going to make a huge difference. And if you do things wrong, you risk the issue of drug resistance and, and of using up really good options. So. I think the more effective a treatment is, the more important it is for it to be done right and for patients to educate themselves before entering into that very important first step. I mean, fortunately, there's less that you have to know now about things like opportunistic infections and symptoms of HIV because hopefully we're, we treat people before those things happen. So that's not as important, but the issues about treatment and about adherence and about how to put together a good combination and resistance, those are more important than they ever were. You know, it's simpler for people with HIV now because they don't have to take as many pills and it's easier and less fewer side effects. But in some ways, you could argue that it's more complicated for the clinicians who are prescribing the medication just because there's so many more choices than there used to be. And how do you make those choices correctly? You know, I'm always glad to see people with HIV writing to me to try to, not that they don't trust their doctors, but that they want to be more of equal partners with their doctors. And they want to know what questions to ask. They want to know enough information to have an intelligent conversation with the clinician about their treatment. And I think that educating yourself in that way can only help. Have you also been surprised as your role as an online expert at the lack of knowledge by a lot of providers? that you see in the questions that people are asking, like my doctor's giving me Truvada, Tenofovir, or something like that, you know? Yeah, I have seen that, and that has not changed. It continues to be an issue. Now, in some cases, it's just a matter of opinion or a difference in style, and, and the, the doctor's not necessarily wrong, but it's not something that I would do, or maybe it's something that was, you know, uh, they're using a drug that is still a legitimate drug, but not preferred anymore, that kind of thing. And, and you know, I that's that's okay. But every once in a while, I'll come across somebody who's really getting really uh, horrendous care, you know, people who are on Combovir by itself, or just all sorts of things, you know, relics from decades ago. Uh, and in some cases, I actually have to be pretty blunt and say, you need a new doctor. I mean, I so far haven't been sued for saying that, but, um, but there's some mistakes are just too extreme to pass up. With the with the less extreme mistakes, I try to be a little more diplomatic and say, you, you know, you might want to consider another opinion or well, you might want to print this out and show it to your doctor and see what he has to say, that kind of thing. Do you think that this is happening really because HIV is such a fast-changing field and that it's very, very hard to keep up with the changes? Well, it is very hard. And I wouldn't expect a primary care physician to really keep up with all these changes, just like I wouldn't expect a primary care physician to know how to treat leukemia. Our goal should not be to get primary care docs to know more about how to treat HIV. 
But to get primary care docs to make sure they're referring their HIV-positive patients to experts, not to say that they have to give up their patients, um, but to co-manage them, you know, to make sure the, that there's uh, an expert involved in the decision-making. We don't have enough HIV experts in this country to, to do primary care and HIV for everybody with HIV, but it is important that people with HIV have the input of an expert, even if it's... In How do you find an expert? Well, that, and that's, a, that's an issue. How do you define it? There is currently no official specialty for HIV medicine, although the uh, HIV Medical Association which is a branch of uh, Infectious Disease Society of America, is thinking about establishing a credential with a special test. There's also the American Academy of HIV Medicine that has had an expert certification process. There's arguments about whether this is the right way to go, but at least it's a start to try to establish, you know, what kind of knowledge base doctors should have to to be qualified as HIV experts. And it also, I think, at least it brings out it, it sort of selects out those clinicians who really want to be devoting themselves to HIV enough to, to take these tests or to apply for those certifications. It doesn't mean that somebody who's on the list is necessarily an expert, but it's, it's a step. So have you done a book tour, been on TV as a result of the book? <laughs> no, no, no movie contracts, nothing like that, no Oprah yet, but uh, I'm just waiting by my phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think it's, people aren't picking up your book so readily is because HIV is still not being focused on in American mainstream society? If you wrote a book about diabetes or something, I don't know, about something where you wouldn't talk about sex or something. Well, I think my book's much more interesting than diabetes because we talk about sex. I mean, <laughs> you know, how much, you know, they probably only have one chapter about sex in a diabetes book. Uh, we got all sorts of chapters in this book. So, um, I think it would provide hours of entertainment for somebody who ha- didn't have HIV, but that's, I'm biased about that. No, I, I mean, I, I think it's probably, according to the publishers, they, they don't tell me how much it's sold, but they tell me that it's sold more than the other books in their series, for what that's worth. So I'm um, pleased to hear that. And, you know, my patients bring it in to get it autographed. I don't know if they've read it or not, but I guess maybe they'll tell me once a year whether it's, being, whether it's selling or not. I've done some uh, patient forums locally in in Baltimore, and here when we do that, the audience is often fairly uh, disadvantaged financially, uh, inner city minorities, and you know even though the book is thirteen to fifteen bucks on Amazon, it's it's way more than they can afford to spend. Um, I wish we had a way of distributing it because so many people in this country who um, have HIV don't have good access to the internet. They don't have the money to spend on books like this, even even cheap ones, and they so they they get shortchanged when it comes to information. If somebody out there knows somebody who's willing to uh, provide a grant or something <laughs> to distribute the, yeah. the this great book, so that people can become more knowledgeable about HIV and really be able to take care of themselves, that that would be great. That would be great. Do you think you're going to do a second book? Well, I think um, if at least for this book, my hope is that. Uh, we can continue to update it. You know, obviously, when you write about something like HIV, the information can become obsolete pretty fast. And so my hope is that it will sell enough so that they'll be able to justify having me update it frequently. I still, someday, my hope is to be able to write a book with uh, some of those crazy questions from the forum, just because there's, some of them are so priceless that I hate to see them disappear into the <laughs> Ethernet. But uh, there's, so far, there's no big demand for that. Can you remember any, just so we can close with a funny question? Do you remember any good ones? Well, you know, there was the story that I, the reason I bring it up is because it affected the body. And that was where somebody had written to me, they, they they had very soft skin. 
and they were worried that that must be a sign of HIV. And I, I wrote back a very long, lengthy discussion of how of the history of soft skin as a as a symptom of HIV, and I cited articles that I made up out of my head, and and how the, the how the tragedy of soft skin had you know started out in San Francisco, and you know, and I wrote this long thing, and I thought it was pretty clear that I was joking. But apparently this person didn't think so, and then then was terrified that I had confirmed that he had HIV and wrote to people at the body, and then they wrote to me saying, what is this that you're saying that people with soft skin have HIV? So it really snowballed. Uh, <laughs> but anybody who normal who read my answer would know that I was joking. It's still there on uh, in the favorites of our website. <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glenn, and I'm sure that people will be you know, going to Amazon. I think it's available on Amazon. Um, yeah, just type Togolant and easier than typing 100 questions and answers about HIV and AIDS. Great. It's a great work, you know, I think really needed, and uh, I hope it gets well distributed. Thanks so much, Bonnie. Thank you. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thank you for listening to HIV News and Views. For more podcasts, be sure to visit us online at www.thebody.com.